0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, Brother Landon. Great job. Great job. Uh, Brethren, there was an exchange in Slack this week uh, between uh, Johanna and Becca, And I'm not sure what the conversation was, but Johanna was pointing out to Becca uh, a a conference called the RAD Festival, R-A-A-D. It's uh, this coming September, from the 20th to the 23rd, and it's all about how to avoid aging, how to defeat the aging process, and ultimately to live forever. The keynote speaker is a gentleman by the name of Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil, he's a well-known futurist. And he speaks of something and has written about something uh, that these futurists call the singularity. The singularity. That's something that we should be familiar with. It's uh, going to increasingly become something that is going to be concerning to those of us in the category of human beings. It's called the singularity. And ultimately it speaks of an inflection point. That that technology is advancing so fast and that technology enables more technology. So you're you're able to create technology with technology. And the more technology you have, the more technology you can create. And so as they look into the future, they see this point where we lose control of the technology. And it creates itself. And they're specifically concerned about artificial intelligence. So the futurists, as they look into the future, they see two scenarios. One scenario is quite ugly. Uh, Basically, we have uh, humanoid type creatures that are computers that look and sound just like a human being, but it's just artificial intelligence. And we basically become their pets or their slaves. Uh, and that the intelligence would be just so beyond anything that human beings are capable of, and they will basically create themselves and preserve themselves and use human beings as slaves or maybe even destroy us. And these these are top thinkers. This is what the thought leaders are worried about. The other scenario they see is a scenario where these robots and artificial intelligence are our slaves, and they make our lives better and specifically in the area of medicine, they heal all diseases. So we would take these uh, bots, these robots, that are so small that they get injected into our bloodstream, and they basically monitor the cells in our bloodstream. And the moment there's any indication of disease or aging, they just automatically correct the aging process. And, And this is what they're working towards. And so with this, dying becomes irrelevant. That the body just continually recreates itself and we live forever. This will never happen. So as much as they see it as sort of an eventuality, they see this as a natural outcome. That the science and the technology is so advanced and it's advancing so quickly. They see us getting to this point. But on the strength of God's word, we can tell them this will never happen. And it will never happen because of the text here. Let's go to Genesis 3. Where we see this behavior of investing in artificial intelligence, investing in technology, trying to cheat death. We see this behavior in our ancestor. It's in Adam. And God had a very strong response to this behavior. In Genesis 3 and verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become, as one of us, to know good and evil. So this was something that he was not to know. He already knew good, but he was not to know the use of good to do evil, which he learned as a result of fellowshipping with the devil. And so now he knows evil, but he doesn't have the character of God to resist evil. So God says, look, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God has sent him forth from the garden, or therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. And notice verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed east of the Garden of Eden cherubims or cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So Adam had no right to the tree of life because he had this failed character that this ability to do evil There is no way God would allow him to live forever. And so these uh, futurists and scientists and technologists who are working so hard to figure out how to cheat death, they're doing what Adam did. They're disobeying God. They're developing the character of Satan, and then they're trying to reach for the tree of life, trying to live forever. And God says, no way. This This will never happen. And so we can say confidently that this will not happen. In a sense, what I'd like you to see this situation, as as intelligent as these people are, we have to see them as drunkards. They're drunk, but not with wine. They're drunk. And the question is, for us, you know, we we can say this is never going to happen. They're drunk. This, This is ridiculous. But the question for us is, are we trying to do the same thing? Are we trying to reach for the tree of life? but hold on to our evil character. And in a sense, we're drunk. We, we are opposing the will of God, which is to develop godly character, and with godly character, live forever. We're saying, no, I, I want the shortcut. I'm happy the way I am, I just want to live forever. This is the danger. And to test ourselves as to whether or not we are in this category of Adam, which was a thief and a liar and wanted to live forever in that state, which ultimately leads to becoming a murderer, which his children became, his son became a murderer, to test whether or not we're in this state of wanting to cheat death and live forever with an evil character, God gives us the Passover every year. Every year we get tested with the Passover. And the question is, are we drunk going into the Passover? Because if we're drunk going into the Passover, we'll have the Passover hangover after the Passover. And we don't want that. If we have the Passover hangover, we're in the category of the first Adam. We want to be sober and be as the second Adam. Look, Matthew 24. Uh, Jessica did a nice reading of Matthew 24. Let's turn there. And in verse 38, Christ is telling us what the end time will be like. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, mankind will be drunk. Mankind's senses will be inebriated, and he won't know what's going on until Christ returns. And this is, this is, uh, this is the way it was at Noah's time, and it's the way it's going to be when Christ returns. And then he goes on to say, at this time, then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. So there's going to be a division. There's going to be two together that look like they should be together, and one will be taken and the one the other will be left. So it's not that they're they're together, but both will not satisfy Christ. One will be drunk and one will be sober. Because of this condition, before Christ returns, he says to us, watch therefore, because you do not know what hour your Lord does come. So so stay alert. Don't get drunk. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. And Christ uh, continually or repeatedly likens himself to a thief in the night. That the thief comes unexpectedly and breaks into the house. And so this is our condition that a thief is at the door. A thief threatens our house. And we need to be sober and awake so that our home is not broken up. Therefore, be you also ready for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man comes. It's going to be a surprise. It's it's going to be like People have given up maybe, or maybe it looks like conditions are fine. We're not sure what's going on here, but Christ is assuring us that it's going to happen when we don't think it's going to happen. So we must stay sober. Who then, because of this condition of surprise, he asked the question, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household? to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. So there's a servant that is concerned about the household, wants to keep the household awake, wants to give the household meat in due season, is focused on edification. Is focused on edification to uh, speak to Deacon Jan's sermon last week. There's that servant. So there's two together. One is sober, one is drunk. But there's a servant that really is focused on edification. Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Truly I say to you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if, that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. So so something about the condition, that there's two in the field, or two together, one is sober, one is drunk with the world. And just as in the days of Noah, hey, it's business as usual. Everything seems normal. But Christ is saying, it's in that condition I'm going to surprise you. But it won't be a surprise to the servant that is faithful. It'll be a surprise to the servant that's drunk. And the servant that's drunk, that's drunk is saying, oh, my Lord delays his coming. And then shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. So the same way in the time of Noah, the people were drunk. Noah could see what was happening, but no one else could. And they just continued business as normal. What Christ is saying here is that of the two servants, or you could say half the church then, is going to participate in the drunkenness, business as usual. And half the church is going to say, no, it's not business as usual. Christ is coming. But the half that says business as usual gets drunk and begins to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him. Christ keeps repeating this. It's going to come by surprise. It's going to come in a day when he looks not for him. And in an hour that he's not aware of, keeps repeating this, I'm coming as a thief, I'm coming by surprise to the drunken, and shall cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. So within the church, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the context. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of of teeth in the world, but the context is within, within the church. You could say half will be foolish, half will be wise. In fact, we don't have to say that because the scripture says it. It's exactly where Christ goes next in Matthew 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven, so at this time, the kingdom of heaven will be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five of them were drunk. Five of them were foolish. So he kind of splits it in half to say, The whole church is not going to be successful. Half will be successful. Half will not be successful. They that were foolish took their lamps, but took no oil with them. So there was a problem in the sense that we look the part, but we really are not the part. And we're not the part because the Holy Spirit is not in us. The wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, while the bridegroom tarried, and this is the problem, the bridegroom is going to tarry. It's going to look like he should come, that he should be here now, and he's not returning. And we have need of patience. And so while he tarries, and then he said that the, um, the, the drunk servant says, my lord delays his coming. So while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. He took, he took a long time. So they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made. He says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. I'm going to come at an hour when you're not expecting. And at midnight there was a cry made. Behold, the the bridegroom comes. Go you out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so. Lest there be not enough for us and you. This is serious. The bridegroom's coming. We have to meet him. You know, I would love to share, you'd love to share with me, but you have to meet the bridegroom. And there's no way you're going to meet the bridegroom without oil in your lamp. So as much as you might care for me and want to share your your oil with me, no, you have to meet the bridegroom. The answer saying, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. So, You know, it's not too late. Go and get the oil. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. He comes at an hour when we're not expecting. And they that were ready, those that were sober, went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut, just like Noah's Ark. Just like Noah's Ark, the door is shut. Afterward came also the other virgins. These are God's people saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Truly I say unto you, I don't know you. So they knew the Lord, and they come to the Lord, but he doesn't know them. Watch therefore, he underlines this, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Any of us can be drunk. And it's sort of a gradual process. You know, I start with a glass of wine. That was a nice glass of wine. I have a second one, a third one. I don't know what it's like to be drunk. I, I have been a bit tipsy well, once or twice uh, when I was younger. Uh, but this is, this is the process. It's a gradual process. And then suddenly you've consumed too much. And this, is, this plagues our society. In fact, uh, if you were to look at North America, In 2015, 10,265 people died in alcohol-impaired driving crashes. In Canada, it says the presence of alcohol or drugs in fatal motor vehicle crashes on public roads, it's approximately four people every single day. Every single day in Canada, four people die. Because somebody consumed too much alcohol or drugs and decided to drive. And this is, this is what can plague the church. In fact, it has plagued the church. Look at our condition. The church should be much, much bigger than it is today. In fact, CGI should be much bigger than it is today. We're, we're celebrating 40 years. CGI has been, this is our 40th year. The church should be much bigger. But drunkenness has plagued the church and a drunkenness of a sort that fellow servants beat up on one another and smite one another and cause division in the church. So Christ in Matthew 24 and 25 is giving us a very clear warning that the church needs to be alert. The church needs to understand the danger. The church needs to be ready for Christ's return. And he gives us then, and what I want to do for the sermon, is look at the Passover as a means to staying sober. How do we use the Passover as a means to stay sober? To ensure that we're in the 50% that Christ spoke of, to make sure that when he returns, we're ready. We're there. He, he receives us and he shuts the door. And we're, we're on the inside, not on the outside. The Passover can help us test our sobriety. Let's go to First Corinthians eleven. In First Corinthians eleven, beginning at seventeen, verse seventeen, Paul writes. Now in this, that I declare unto you, I praise you not. So he was not pleased with the Corinthian congregation in this thing. That you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. So here we have an actual example of drunkenness. Physical drunkenness and spiritual drunkenness. And an actual example of God's servants smiting one another. And so Paul is telling them, you're in danger of being locked out when Christ returns. So I don't praise you in this, that when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I partly believe it. Why? For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So Christ says, let the wheat and the tares grow together. And, and in the persecution of the tares on, on the wheat, the wheat actually grow and become manifest, become obvious. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the agape meal, the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before the other his own supper. So they're drunk, they're selfish, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. So they're physically drunk, but they were spiritually drunk as well. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, this smiting of your fellow servants, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now notice verse 23. For I have received of the Lord... That which also I delivered unto you. What is it that he received of the Lord and delivered to the brethren? That they should know better. This is it. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. This is what Paul received from Christ and what he gave to the brethren in Corinth. And if they had received this, they wouldn't behave They would not be drunk. They would not be smiting one another if they had received this. That the same night in which the Lord was betrayed, he took bread. So hold your place here. And let's see what happened here. We can ask ourselves, you know, how was he betrayed? He was betrayed with a kiss. He was betrayed on the inside, not the outside. Matthew 27. Hold your place here. We're going to come back. So, the very night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread. In Matthew 27, we, we know that he was betrayed by Judas. And we know that he was betrayed with a kiss. He was betrayed on someone on the inside. One of the twelve with a kiss. That man was drunk. He was drunk. And he suffered a hangover. And in Matthew 27 verse 3, we we see the hangover. He says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, Repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Too late, the door's been shut. Who's in is in, and who's out is out. But he sees now that he's condemned, so he's now taking corrective action, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. So he realizes now what he's done. He was drunk and he, he betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. This is the effect of the hangover. This is the outcome of being drunk and smiting Christ's body. In medicalnews.com, it says a hangover is a collection of signs and symptoms linked to a recent bout of heavy drinking. A person with a hangover typically experiences a headache, feels sick, dizzy, sleepy, confused, and thirsty. And they say the best way to avoid a hangover is to avoid alcohol. Don't, Don't get drunk, and you won't have to suffer the hangover. So let's take this spiritually. We don't want to suffer the hangover. This is the ultimate hangover that Judas had. He betrayed Christ, And he suffered the next day, or afterward, when he realized what he had done. We, the body of Christ, must not betray one another. We must not smite one another. And we must not go into the Passover with that attitude and come out with a hangover. Carrying that over to the other side of the Passover. Because the Passover is the test on whether or not we're drunk. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Actually, sorry, before we go there, go to Matthew 24. Let's just back up a couple of chapters to Matthew 24. Where Christ tells us that half the virgins are wise and half the virgins are foolish. He says it in another way here in Matthew 24 in verse 8 where he says, all of these things are the beginning of sorrows. So that the... there is going to be this turning point. That's just the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, the same way they delivered Christ, and shall kill you the same way they killed Christ. And you shall be hated of all nations, the same way Christ was hated, for my name's sake. At this time, then shall many be offended, and like Judas, shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And so the many, I, I sometimes I think, is that the majority? But if we combine this with Matthew 25, which is the next chapter, he's saying half and half. Half will be wise, half will be foolish. And and later in this chapter, he says two will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. So it seems like 50, so many, doesn't have to be the majority. It could be half. They shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And in verse 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And we know, just put two and two together, those of us, you know, God forbid, if we fall into this category, we will suffer the hangover. Just as Judas did. So let's go back now to 1 Corinthians 11. Christ Knowing this is the night, I'm going to be betrayed. The one who betrays me is at the table with me. The one who betrays me is going to kiss me to give me away. With that knowledge, Paul is saying this is what happened in verse 24. So verse 23, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he knows he's going to be slaughtered. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This is the love that Christ had for Israel. That he knew what was going to happen to him. He knew this is it. This is the end. But he goes like a lamb to the slaughter. Why? Because he's on a mission. He's on a mission. He's not going to be deviating from his mission. So this is the night. Here's the betrayer at the table with me, and it's all good. Lord, I give you thanks. This is the love that he had. And he says to us to do this, to remember him. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he wants us to remember. And Paul is saying this happened on the night that he was betrayed. So the Corinthians are now coming together for this meal and they're smiting one another. And he's saying this should never happen. If you understood what Christ did, the love that Christ had, that he could have this Passover meal, this, this, this uh, sharing with his brethren, knowing this is the night I'm going to be betrayed. In fact, the person that is going to betray me is at the table. But that did not cause him to retaliate. That did not cause him to develop a spirit of or an attitude of hatred and hostility. No, he was on a mission. We are Christ's body. And we are on a mission. the scripture tells us very clearly we are going to be betrayed. the, the, the heat is going to turn up in such a way that brethren will turn on and brother will turn against brother. the Passover gives us this opportunity annually to remember Christ and to remember how he ca- how he conquered the devil how he overcame the devil, how? Through love. So we keep this Passover annually to remember Christ and to develop this kind of Christ love, this Christ-like mission. We're on a mission. So he says then that we're we're taking the bread, we're taking the cup to remember Christ And in verse 26, he adds this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. So we're to do it to remember him. And then he says, as often as we do it, you show the Lord's death until he comes. So we know he's coming like a thief in the night. We know he's coming by surprise. We know that the foolish, the drunk, are going to be caught off guard. But every year, we're to do this to show his death. We show his death. And it's just like when I first was, was trying to understand the Passover, why don't we celebrate his birth? Isn't that the wonderful good news? And the scriptures say, no, the good news is his death. And that's what we need to rehearse. Because his death demonstrates his love. That death is the big fear of mankind. So in September, we have all these thought leaders coming together trying to figure out how can we cheat death. Death is the enemy. And Christ faced the enemy head on. How? Through love. So every Passover, we rehearse the Lord's death to understand love. How is it that he loved Israel so much that on the very night he's to be slaughtered, he breaks the bread and says, this is my body. And he pours the wine and says, This is my blood. And so we do this annually. We rehearse this annually because we are the Lord's body now. He's our head. We're his body. We are Christ. And so every year we deepen our understanding of this love and our commitment to love on pain of death. On pain of death. Brethren have been crucified, brethren have been beheaded. The past is prologue, and it's okay. Because just as Christ conquered death, we conquer death. Just as Christ conquered evil, we conquer evil. Just as Christ conquered the devil, we conquer the devil. Through love. Through love. So he says, we're showing the Lord's death until he comes. And he says in another place, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So we show the Lord's death. What's that? Love. We show the Lord's love until he comes. And by this shall all men know that we're his disciples, that we love one another. Therefore, verse 27, whosoever, no exception, shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty, just as Judas was, of the body and blood of the Lord. That's not a category we want to be in. We do not want to face God, Christ, or the Father saying, I'm guilty. Just as Judas came, uh, this hangover, he came to realize he's guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And just went and hung himself. And, and it would have been far better for him that he had not been born. So we can take the Passover And be in the category of Judas. Or we can take the Passover. And be in the category of Jesus. It's Judas or Judas. Jesus or Judas. There's no in between. So as we take the bread. And we take the wine. We are either Judas or Jesus. We're not ourselves. We're either Christ. Or the betrayer of Christ. So he says. Therefore. We'll be guilty if we take it unworthily. Not that we can be worthy, but we can take it in an unworthy manner. So let a man examine himself and then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So you think, don't you think, I want you to take the Passover. Just do a check first. Examine yourself. And this actually is the acid test. A lot of people would say, you've got to examine yourself and how have you sinned. and It's very clear. Examine yourself for the love of the brethren. Because that's the acid test. If we have sin in our life, if we have hypocrisy in our life, we will not love Christ. We won't. We'll be hostile to Christ because we have sin and we want our sin. And Christ doesn't want us to have the sin. And so there's a resistance that we have to Christ. But if we are truly overcoming truly throwing ourselves into this way of life, we will love Christ. And because we love Christ, we will love his body. And so the acid test becomes, do you love the body? Because if you love the body, Christ's spirit is flowing through you and through me. So we have to examine ourselves, do we love the body? Because if we don't, there's sin in our life. And so then let us eat that bread and drink that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily, again, not that we're worthy of it, but that we can take it in an unworthy manner. And to take it in an unworthy manner is to do what Judas did. To sit at the table with Christ, to eat his bread, drink his wine, and betray him. That's the unworthy manner. The unworthy manner. For he that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks Damnation to himself. Not discerning the Lord's body. That's the whole thing. Discerning the Lord's body. And so we need to go through the Passover and come out the other side sober. And sober means to love. To discern the Lord's body and to love the Lord's body. So discern means, oh, this is not that. Discern is to distinguish. So if you are discerning, you can distinguish what is the Lord's body, so that also means you can distinguish what is not the Lord's body. The drunk can't do this. Not only do they smite the Lord's body, they eat and drink with the drunken. It says there's no discernment. I can't tell the difference between who's a member of God's body and who isn't. And so I can beat up on God's body in one minute, and in the next minute I can eat and drink with the drunken. Because I have no powers of discernment. And then I can take the Passover and think that this is okay. So power of discernment means you can separate. You can distinguish. And then you can love. And this really dovetails with Deacon Jan's sermon around, you know, what is my gift? What gift should I be focused on? And how that gift that all of us can access and pray for and desire and develop is the gift of prophecy. That we can all desire the edification of Christ's body. We have to discern the body to edify it. And in order to have that desire, you have to have love. And so we we need agape in order to use the gifts. So there's a a sort of a train of thought here that begins in chapter 11 that says you have to discern the Lord's body and you have to love the Lord's body and be willing to die for the Lord and be willing to die for one another. And so you take the Passover even in the face of betrayal. It's okay because you have such great love. From there, understanding we have to discern, he then goes into chapter 12 to say everybody's not the same. We don't think the same, we don't act the same, we don't have the same background experiences, we don't have the same perspectives. But if we are all a part of God's body, all of us are gifted. And we're gifted to the benefit of the body. So you need to be able to discern the body and see the gifts that each part of the body has. From there he tells us, as we heard last week, there is a gift that is better than the other gifts that we should pursue. But to understand that, you need to understand love, which goes back to chapter 11. We have to have this love for God and this love for his body. And when we have that, then we can go into chapter 14, understanding that the passion is for the body and to edify the body. When my son was, he must have been around, I think, five or six. No, actually, he was younger because he had just learned to walk, so maybe it was around two or three. And we were in the U.K., and uh, my wife's family were all together, and some of them are very loud. Some of them are very loud and very boisterous. Uh, but my wife has a sister, her name's Rita, who is more of a quiet spirit, like, like Jennifer. And she was sitting there, and in all of this sort of cacophony and laughter and jokes, and Ryan was just holding on to what he thought Was Jennifer's leg, but it was actually Rita's leg. And at some point, it was quite a while he was holding on. And at some point, he looked up and he saw that it was not—it wasn't Jennifer. It was Rita, and he panicked and he was like, "Where's Jennifer? Where's my mom?" Right? So we can make mistakes. He couldn't discern his mom's body. It looked like it, and you know the devil can be a deceiver. He's going to present himself like Christ. We have to discern. Look at Ephesians five Ephesians five and in verse thirteen the Apostle writes that all things are, that are reproved are made manifest by the light. So the light exposes them. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you that sleep. So remember Matthew 25, they all slumbered and slept. Awake you that sleep and arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So there's always this risk of God's people being drunk, of God's people being fools. Christ himself warns us and now the apostle warns us that we must walk circumspectly, not as fools, the devil would love for us to be as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And I don't, I don't think uh, any generation would understand this as much as us or maybe future generations That the days are evil. This is an evil time. Therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So as we take the Passover this year, do we understand what the will of the Lord is? Are we wise? Or are we foolish? And do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. Now, drop down to verse 28. I want to just look at this with you. And let's try to understand this together. Because this is a great mystery. In verse 28, he says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. So this is a mystery, but he's speaking about Christ and the church. So Christ loves his wife, As if it's his own body. In fact, he refers to the church as his body. He that loves his wife loves himself. So the two, he says, shall become one. So a man that loves his wife loves himself. Because the man and his wife are one. The church and Christ are one. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. It's a mystery, but he's speaking concerning Christ and the church. So it's impossible for you to have the Holy Spirit and me to have the Holy Spirit and we hate one another. This is impossible. Because no man yet ever hated his own flesh. And the man and his wife are one. So Christ's spirit does not hate itself. It loves itself. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So we pursue this gift of prophesying, because that's part of the nourishing and cherishing. Even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are one with Christ. We must understand what the will of the Lord is. And when we do, this is when we pursue our gifts, and we pursue edification. So we should all be passionate about our gifts. Passionate about praying and receiving the Holy Spirit, and receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit, so that we can love the body. That's what we're doing. We're loving the body. We're loving Christ. Because when Christ works through us, he loves his wife. When Christ works through us, no man ever yet hated his own body. It's impossible for us to betray when Christ is working through us. 1 John 4. 1 John 4. And verse 20, if a man say I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So the love is either present in us or it's not. So the, the presence of love does not require a specific object of love. The presence of love, is, it, it exists. God is love. Before he created it, God did not have to create in order to become love. God is love. The the, the presence of others is not required because God is one. God and Christ are one. They love each other. From eternity past, God is love. So if that love is in us, it doesn't depend on the presence of a particular being. I love God, and when he shows himself, I'll show you how much I love him. No. If I have God's love, I just love. So he asked the question, if you can't love your brother who you've seen, then how can you love God whom you haven't seen? And this commandment have we from him. So Paul Paul said to the Ephesians, you have to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now John is saying, here's the will of the Lord. Because he's given us this commandment. That he who loves God... Love his brother also. Whoever, chapter 5, 1, believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. And everyone that loves him that begat, loves him also that is begotten of him. So this is anybody who loves God, who does the begetting, loves him also who has been begotten of God. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. And this is the whole problem that we have with man. Man wants the benefit of life. But doesn't want to obey God. We don't want God's commandments. We wish God would kind of be a subject of ours. Rather than we be the subject of God. We want the benefit without paying the price. There was a gentleman uh, written up in an article, it's quite a story. The article is called Bound for Glory. And this gentleman, in 1982, he wanted to fly. But not fly like get in an airplane and fly. He just wanted to fly, he wanted to fly just like this. So he came up with a plan. He lived in Los Angeles, and he came up with a plan to attach weather balloons filled with helium to a lawn chair. And he had something like 50 weather balloons. These are big balloons. And he had them attached to his lawn chair. And he planned to soar about 6,000 feet. And he wanted to go from uh, Los Angeles, where he was, to the Modavi Desert. And he had it all figured out that he had these stra- they were st- his lawn chair was strapped to the balloons, the balloons were being held down, he would cut the ropes gradually, and he would just ascend into the, into the sky. Unfortunately, the ropes snapped. And instead of gradually going up 6,000 feet, he went up like an elevator, 16,000 feet. He was being sunburned and frozen at the same time. He had a CB radio, So when the planes were flying in, they were saying, like, what is this object? And they were uh, communicating with ground control, saying, what is this object? And they finally figured out, they got in touch with his wife, what he was doing. He had figured out that the way he would descend, he had a BB gun, is he would shoot the balloons one at a time, and that way he could come down gradually. Unfortunately, he shot, uh, I think he shot about 10 or so balloons, so he had 35 left. And then he dropped the BB gun. Now he's just stranded out there. Uh, But 35, with his weight and everything, because he had uh, um, bags of water attached to him, so 35 with the weight, it started to bring him down gradually. And he started to head for the electrical wires. And it's like, okay, this is it. I'm going to be electrocuted to death. So he managed to make contact with the ground authorities. They turned off all the electricity so that he wouldn't be electrocuted. Uh, he finally came down gradually. And uh, when he landed, they said, this is definitely a crime. We just don't know what part of the legal code he has broken. So when we figure it out, we will charge him. Turns out, unfortunately, 11 years later, he committed suicide. Don't ask me why or how, but here's an example of mankind wanting something which we will receive in God's time. But man wants it now. And man wants it now with all of his evil nature. And, and what is the outcome? It's never good. So we will have these things. We will have eternal life. We will have the ability to fly. We will do many things. But God is commanding us to learn how to love first. This is the missing ingredient. This is why Adam had to be cut off from the tree of life, because he didn't have love. And it's those of us who have love that God can give us eternal life. So what are some practical things that we can do to ensure that we don't suffer from a Passover hangover as we go through the Passover this year? Because that's the acid test. If we come out of the Passover with a hangover, high probability we'll be in that probability of the drunkard, those that eat and drink, with the drunken. The key is communication. And it's communication with the intent of reconciliation. Stephen Covey, he's, he's dead now, but he wrote a book, a very popular book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it was just well-received and very logical, very clear uh, habits that made sense that he studied effective people and said this is what they have in common. Habit number five was to seek first to understand, then to be understood. And he said that the people who were not effective, when they communicated, they communicated to be understood. You need to understand me. No, you're not getting what I'm saying. And he said, no, the the people who were effective, they would communicate first, help me understand. How, why, what were you thinking when this happened? And once they understood, they would feed it back. And then they would say, okay, now I need you to understand where I'm coming from. So he says this, or it says this about this habit. Communication is the most important skill in life. You spend years learning how to read and write and years learning how to speak. But what about listening? Anybody ever teach us to listen? What training have you had that enables you to listen so you really, deeply understand another human being? Probably none, right? If you're like most people, you probably seek first to be understood. You want to get your point across, and in doing so, you may ignore the other person completely, pretend that you're listening, selectively hear only certain parts of the conversation, or attentively focus on only the words being said, but miss the meaning entirely. So, why does this happen? Because most people listen with the intent to reply, not to understand. You listen to yourself as you prepare in your mind what you're going to say, the questions you're going to ask, etc. You filter everything you hear through your life experiences, your frame of reference. You check what you hear against your autobiography. And see how it measures up. And consequently, you decide prematurely what the other person means before he or she finishes communicating. And then they go on to explain this. So, this is a secular man. Well, he, he, has, he was a spiritual man, but he was not one of God's children. But he was observant. And he saw that there are people that are highly effective, and others not so much. And this was one of the big differences. How do we communicate? And do we communicate to be heard and understood? Or do we communicate to hear, really hear, and to really understand? Matthew 18. God tells us how to resolve our differences. To Stephen Covey's point around Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Another piece of advice I've heard is to tell people how you felt. You know, your husband or your wife says something to you. You know, when you said that, I felt like this. Rather than, you always do that, you never do this, uh, you're just trying to do th-. Don't impute motives. Just say, when you said this, this is how I felt. So you're communicating how you felt. Nobody can fault you for that. So we have to learn how to communicate in a spirit of reconciliation. Here in Matthew 18 and verse 1, he says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. And said, Truly I say unto you, except you be converted, we have to change. We can't be like the first Adam. We have to become like the second Adam. Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we need to become like these little children. And then he says this. Whoever shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. So you've done it on, if you do it unto this little child, you've done it unto Christ. Whoever receives one such little child in my name receives me. But whoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. So again, this is discerning the Lord's body. Whoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him, like Judas, that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So this is how important it is to discern the Lord's body. He goes on to say that offenses will come, and that you know that's just the way it is, but we need to know how to handle these offenses by, by pursuing that which is lost. So he says here in verse 15, "If your brother trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone." And again we can add the habit of highly the fifth habit of highly effective people here. That when you go to your brother, you and him alone, you seek first to understand, then to be understood. You don't impute motives. You Basically, you can when, you, when it's time for you to be understood, you can talk about how you felt. But you go with this spirit of reconciliation, you and your brother alone. You don't tell everyone, you tell your brother. If he doesn't hear you, 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 you are still possessing this agape love. And you're pursuing your brother. So if he doesn't hear you, you don't give up. You go to the next step. If he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So is this brother really not a brother? Is he part of those that are drunk, that just want to smite his fellow servant? And so the two or three witnesses will be able to establish that. But you're going, trying to reconcile. Then he says in verse 17, and if he will neglect to hear them, so now you've got witnesses, and the witnesses are not just sitting there passively, they're actually participating in the reconciliation. And if he shall neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. And if he neglect to hear the church, Let him be unto you as a heathen man or a publican. And that doesn't mean you hate him. You can still love him. But he's now, you you, you can discern the Lord's body. He is not, you can see who's in the body and who's not in the body. And then Peter is, you know, how how often do I have to do this? And Christ says, you do it till 70 times seven. So it really is, that's why the Passover is so necessary. We need to develop this mindset of Christ that we can do it 70 times seven times another 70. It's not it's not that we we're counting. It's like no, we'll just we'll just do this over and over again. And then he goes on to talk about the servant that owed a debt and was forgiven but then exacts the debt from somebody else. As we conclude, we'll just look at two more scriptures. Let's go to Matthew 26. See, a very important question here in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26 and verse 21, and as they did eat, he said, Truly I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. So when Christ was here and he was having his meal with his twelve, he said, Truly one of you shall betray me. He's gone now. But he says to us, truly, half of you will be wise, and half of you will be foolish. Truly, half of you will eat and drink with the drunken, and smite your fellow servants, and half of you will have oil in your lamps. Truly, this is this is God's word. So back then of the twelve it was one, now he's telling us it could be fifty percent. And they were very sorry when they heard this, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? This is the question we must ask as we take the Passover. Lord, we know that half the church will betray you. Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, he that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. That the the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. He knew what was happening. And so when we have this Christ Passover mindset, we are not concerned about betrayal. We're concerned about love. We, We just want to love the body. And through, by extension, love mankind. So we're asking, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same, that's the drunk one. That's the one that's going to have a Passover, hangover. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Christ is here today. And woe unto that man or woman that betrays the body of Christ today. It were better for us to have not been born. Lord, is it I? Let's conclude in Revelation 22. The desire to live forever is not wrong. These um, futurists and technologists and, and, and doctors that are meeting together this September, having their conference, trying to figure out how can we reverse the aging process? How can we cure all diseases? How can we make this body, this mechanical instrument, run forever? Just keep replacing itself and run forever. These are good questions. Death is an enemy. The question that they're not asking is what is the character that humanity needs in order to live forever? How do we live together forever? What kind of mindset do we need to live forever together? That's what they're not asking. And that's what God is asking of us. Will you develop the character of my son so that I can give you eternal life? And I can give you to my son to marry. And we can live as a family that loves one another forever. Lord, is it I that will betray you? Well, do you take the Passover worthily in an unworthy manner or a worthy manner? That's the answer to the question. So when we go through the Passover, taking it unworthily, we bring with us this hangover. We bring with us bitterness and hostility and hatred and resentment, and we go through the Passover and come out the other side with this hangover. Lord, is it I? Yes, it's you. Yes, it's me. Or we flush all of the toxins out, and we take the Passover in love, and we come out of the other side in love. And we have the right to the tree of life. Rather than protect the tree of life from man, God gives us the tree of life because we have the character of Christ. Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. This is what they want, eternal life. Here's this river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. Here's eternal life which bear 12 manner of fruits. So we don't need artificial intelligent bots. We just need the tree of life. Which bear 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So We don't need artificial intelligence. God wants us to be healed. And he wants the nations to be healed. And he wants us to live forever. And there shall be no more curse. It's just how we go through the Passover and come out the other side tells us whether or not we can fit in the new creation because there will be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads and there shall be no night there and they need no candle neither light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Brethren, this is what we're called to. We are called to eternal life with the character of Jesus Christ. So as we take the Passover, let us ask ourselves, because the prophecy says the Lord will again be betrayed. Lord, is it I? So as we take the Passover, we either take it as Judas or as Jesus. Let's take it as Jesus and claim the right to eternal life.